Amen. It's okay to shout glory every once in a while. Okay, praise the Lord. Great songs this evening. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 28, coming to... um, I do enjoy 1 Corinthians as a chapter, and these verses happen to be uh, some of my favorite verses in the chapter, verses 20 through 28. They um, are, though, uh, in, in some ways difficult... Uh, but we will we'll work our way through them in a survey fashion and try to make sense out of what is here. And then at the end, draw an emphasis for our church that I think could be really helpful. Uh, this morning, we briefly considered if Christ remained in the grave. Uh, we saw the consequences of that. And when you get to verse 20, Paul <clears throat> departs from that consideration and he boldly affirms that Christ has indeed resurrected from the, the dead. I think Paul gladly leaves the negative doubts of the the skeptical Corinthians aside in this text, and he gives a powerful affirmation in verses 20 through 28. And and actually, as I see this text, I see this text building to a dramatic conclusion in verses 26 through 28. And uh, so as we work through this text, I want to uh, draw our attention to it and, and divide the text into three parts that work together to get to that conclusion uh, near the end. Okay, so the first part I see is uh, the very first part of verse 20. Look at verse 20. Uh, it says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. I've got a pretty simple outline this, mor- this evening. Uh, three points. Number one, first we see the affirmation of Christ's resurrection in verse 20a. The affirmation of Christ's resurrection. Uh, And I love those words in the ESV, but in fact. Uh, Powerful words represent some, I think, some important words in the Greek as well. Some translations will translate it, but now Christ has indeed uh, arose from the dead or raised from the dead. And here Paul defies those in Corinth who says there's no resurrection. I can tell you about a resurrection, but in fact Christ has risen from the dead. So that's the affirmation of Christ's resurrection, that's point one, we're going to point two. If we keep going at this pace, we'll be out very quickly this evening. Um, The second point we observe is the impact of his resurrection, verse 20b through verse 25, a little bigger section, it will take a little bit more time. So let's look in the middle of verse 20, and we'll read on down to the end of verse 25. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Whereas by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For... He must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. I need to say this evening, this text is theologically loaded. It's a difficult text, but it's an important text. I've never had the privilege of of actually preaching through the text. I have written two papers on this text. Um, There's a lot that you could write or you could talk about in this passage, and so we're just going to have to deal with it in overview fashion. So I give this disclaimer. This is a loaded passage. I also give the disclaimer that when I did share those two papers, I got a wide variety of comments from people. Uh, Sometimes, you know, in in some cases, believe it or not, I had some people come up to me and say, you nailed it. I think you really got it. I think you understand the text. 
I had some people at those same presentations, you know, in a very conservative saying, say, I just can't agree with much of what you said at all. This is, you know, this is, you just missed it, that kingdom stuff and all this eschatology stuff. I think you just blew it. Uh, and so good people disagree on some of the interpretive comments that we're going to make and some of the, 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 the things that we'll do here. Uh, but I'm going to walk you through this passage and try to make sense out of uh, these verses. So this, out, this point I call the impact of his resurrection. I think we can see the impact in two ways. First, in verses 20 through 22, uh, we see that the resurrection of Jesus is a guarantee. That is, it's a guarantee of our resurrection. You can see this in the very first part. Uh, and we've already dealt with this a little bit, and so we can go kind of quickly through certain parts. But when he says, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, in verse 20, that imagery, that metaphor, uh, basically is something that Paul will use to say that Jesus' resurrection was the first of a harvest of dead bodies that will be risen from the dead. And as the first of the harvest, as the first fruits, it's a guarantee or like a pledge that other people will come in line. Uh, the phrase first fruits is used often in the Old Testament to describe the first crop that would be produced. It would come up and they would pick it. And in the Old Testament, they would have to give the first fruits to the temple or the tabernacle as a sacrifice. But here, I think the imagery of the first fruits is, you know, Jesus is the first of that harvest, and there'll be a whole harvest of other dead bodies animated by the power of the Spirit, uh, and that, that is, of course, in reference to believers. Paul then explains in verses 21 and 22 the basis of why he understands Christ as the first fruits by drawing an analogy with Adam and the entrance of death. And the analogy goes pretty simply. Adam, as one man, brought death upon all humanity. His one act brought death to all those in Adam, and that is, as I said, all humanity. So too, life from the dead comes from the act of one man as well. All those in Christ, or all believers. One of the important things, if you're just reading verses 21 and 22 here, I think you can get a little bit confused if you're not careful and you think, you know, uh, all, all, all those uh, in, in Christ will be made alive, you could perhaps think that maybe there's some sort of universalism going on here, that everyone will be saved because of the act of Jesus Christ. But in both cases, the word all is modified by the phrase right after it. All those in Adam die. All who are in Adam is all humanity. All those in Christ, those are believers, everyone in Christ will be raised. And so uh, this first part of the, the passage here tells us that the resurrection of Jesus is a guarantee. It's a first fruits of those who be resurrected like him. That leads to verses 23 through 25, what I would call uh, the chain effects of the resurrection of Jesus. Look with me at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all, all enemies under his feet. Here Paul describes the resurrection of Christ as the first stage 
in a great eschatological or end time scene. Christ's resurrection sets in motion a whole series of events that conclude with the end. You see that in the passage? Starts with Christ's resurrection, stuff happens, and then at the end comes the end. In other words, what I see in these verses, in verses 23 through 25, is that the resurrection of Jesus brings a series of chain events that will occur by the power of God. As we look at this series, I think in verse 23, the first thing we see, again, is something we've already mentioned, Christ's resurrection brings the resurrection of believers. And uh, while we've already kind of covered some of this ground, there is something new in verse 23 that sometimes we might take for granted, and that is when. When the resurrection of believers occurs. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ of firstfruits, then at his coming. That's how Paul describes it. Then at his coming, those who belong to him. And so what we learn in this passage is that believers' bodies will be raised when Jesus comes back at his second coming. Uh, with the church, I think it'd be the phase of the second coming that we would call the rapture, okay? So when Jesus comes back in the clouds and those who are alive meet the Lord in the air, uh, those who are dead will receive their glorified bodies. We as well will be changed at that moment. And, and we'll read more of that in, in 1 Corinthians later. So we will be changed at his coming, when he comes. One other little point I want to make about this passage that becomes important later on is the little word then. He says, but each in his own orders, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. That little word then shows a sequence, a chain of events that will occur, and the way it's stated, it almost feels like it's going to happen immediately. Okay, Christ arises from the dead, then. Okay, and if it wouldn't be for at his coming, we might be a little confused, but one of the things I'll point about, out about that little word then is that they're about, at, well, there's at least 2,000 years between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers. And that's, that little word then covers that. Okay, so uh, keep that in mind again for a little bit later. All right, so as we're working through verse 23, we see the first chain of events that will occur because Jesus rose from the dead is the resurrection of believers. But then in verses 24 and 25, we see that the resurrection of believers will bring about the end. Look again at verse 24. Then, same word, comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, of destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. So the next thing that comes in the sequence of events is the end. But again, I want to suggest that there must be a gap here, some sort of gap. There could be a gap between the resurrection of believers in the end times and then the end. Now, we don't know exactly what end he's talking about, right? It just says the end. Okay, it could be the end of this world order or end of life on this planet as we know it. But he describes two events that occur just before 
or in sequence to the end. So as he's describing the end here, first of all, he says, Christ must reign until he utterly defeats all the enemies of God. This is how I take uh, kind of the middle of verse or the end of verse 24. Okay, the end is not going to come yet. And in the meanwhile, Christ will be reigning until he utterly defeats all the enemies of God. He specifically claims, you know, Christ is going to destroy every rule and authority and power. Those words, of course, are quite flexible. And as you look at them, they they might describe different human rulers who stand at enmity with God. It can also describe satanic rulers who are odds with God. Those words are flexible enough to include things even uh, like death that often Paul will personify as a power in the New Testament scriptures. And so what he's basically saying here is that Christ is going to reign or will reign and that his reign will not cease until he subjects all defiant forces to God, including things like death or perhaps Satan himself. So he's describing the end. He says, you know, these sort of things, the end won't come until Christ Christ reigns and he utterly defeats all the enemies of God. But right before that, he also says, Secondly, that after defeating these enemies, Christ will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. Okay, and this is where uh, we can begin to have a little bit of fun with the passage. Okay, well, there's some alternative ways to explain what's going on in verses 24 and 25. I'm going to do my best to just kind of lay out there what I think is going on in the passage. And I think uh, the point that Paul is making is that uh, Christ must utterly defeat the last enemies of God, including death and perhaps Satan himself. And when all of them are defeated, then he will hand the reign or the rule in the kingdom of God over to the Father. So you see, or you ask, well, what time period is he describing? I invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20 for a moment. We're going to do a little flipping around from this point on for the rest of the evening just to try to make sense of what I said was a difficult text, but I think we can understand this uh, as we compare it with other scriptures. Now, what we know from the end times and studying them is that Christ is going to reign and rule on this planet for a thousand years in the future. That time is called the what? Millennial kingdom. You ever wanted to read about the millennial kingdom? Where do you go in your Bible? Isaiah, you can go there. Where else can you go? Where did I just have you turn again? Where was that? Revelation 20, maybe turn there. I love to do one thing. Every time I get a new Bible, I do this. And now some of the Bibles are a lot nicer than they used to be. And so they have headers now. But when I do this, I, you know, I love Revelation 19 and 20. Uh, it's really Revelation 19 and 20 that made me uh, pre-tribulational and pre-millennial. Because starting in Revelation 19 and verse 11, things just occur in a natural sequence. Events are just occurring one right after the other. And so in my Bible, a lot of times what I'll do, I'll get Revelation and uh, I'll go to Revelation 19 verses 6 through 10. I'll write next to there the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a supper uh, involving the church in, in Christ. It occurs in heaven during the tribulational period. So I'll put the Mary Supper of the Lamb, and now I've got a header for that. 
Right after that, you have the second coming of Jesus. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, where Jesus comes back and destroys the world's power, and the church comes with him. We don't do much. Jesus does it all. Uh, But Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, you could read about that. So you've got the church in heaven during the tribulational period, and then we come back with Jesus, and then Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, he sets up the millennial kingdom. And Jesus reigns and rules on this planet for a thousand years. And as church-age saints, we will have glorified bodies and we will reign and rule with Jesus on this planet. Okay, I think the earth will return to conditions uh, perhaps like you know before the fall in the garden, pre-Adamic conditions. Uh, I used to joke around that uh, of all the places to reign and rule, I never wanted Wisconsin. Uh, but I don't even know what the weather will be like at that point. So, uh, But we will be here on this planet, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, describes that. And Christ will reign and rule for a thousand years. During that time, Satan will be thrown where? In the bottomless pit. He'll be there. And you can read about that in this text. This Revelation 19 20 is so cool because you can just kind of follow along the sequence. Follow the timeline. You can see the events unfold. In Revelation 20, in verses 7 through 10, after the millennial kingdom... After Jesus has reigned and ruled for a thousand years, Satan is released and then he's utterly defeated. Look at Revelation 20 and verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. So here we see after the second coming of Jesus Christ, Satan himself will be utterly defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. It's interesting to me that right after this, you have the judgment of the great white throne where the lost are judged before the throne of Jesus And not only in this passage does John describe the fact that Satan will be utterly defeated and thrown into into hell, but so too will something he describes as death in Hades. Look in your Bible at verse 11. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. This text, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15, describes the total or final defeat of Satan after millennial kingdom. John also mentions that death and Hades, which are personified here, will be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus will be ultimately victorious over every ruler and authority and power that reigns or that, that is at odds with God. And Revelation 20 uh, manifests that here for us. Once this happens, go back to 1 Corinthians 15. 
once these events happen at the end of time, then Christ hands sovereign rule of the, of the world, of the kingdom, back to God the Father. Okay, so we're, we're going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You say, you did that revelation thing. That was it's cool how it's chronological. Just follow along. That's what we try to do, uh, you know, in our, our theology here. We're just kind of following along this text and letting that text, Revelation 19.20, set our views of the end times. But what, how does that relate to this text? Well, look again at verse 24. Then comes the end. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, authority, and power. Okay, so I see that this end that Paul is describing here probably occurs after the millennial kingdom. When Jesus is victorious over Satan, death, and hell, and they're all cast into the lake of fire. Then Paul does something interesting in verse 25. His basis for explaining things this way and for Christ's rule lasting until all the enemies are put under his feet, comes through an allusion to an Old Testament text. Look at verse 25. Okay, so the reason it's going to end like this, the reason it's going to happen this way, the end comes, is for he, Jesus, must reign until he, that's either Jesus or God, it's a tough one. I would probably say Jesus, I'll explain it why in a second. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And what Paul does here is he alludes to a very important Old Testament passage. And so I told you we'd be going to a few passages tonight. This will probably be the last one. Go to Psalm 110 for me in your Bibles. Okay, you can keep your finger in 1 Corinthians, but go to Psalm 110. And I want to show you that I think when Paul's describing these things, he says, uh, here's the basis for why I would say that Christ has to reign until he defeats all authorities, rulers, and powers, and then he'll hand the kingdom over to God. His basis is Psalm 110, verse 1. Okay, so look in your Bible at Psalm 110. This is uh, a Psalm of David, that's a title. And I, I do believe that this is something David wrote. Okay, Christ confirms that later on. In the New Testament, it says, uh, the Lord says to my Lord, this is going to be an important passage for the New Testament. And one of the things I want you to notice, if you've got an ESV to make sense of this passage, is you've got to understand this first phrase. He says, the Lord, okay, and uh, the ESV still does the thing with, with capitalizing uh, the, the little letters O, R, and D to show you that this is the word Yahweh. Okay, it speaks of, especially here in this text, God the Father. The Lord, God, says to my, David's, Lord, and notice that word Lord is not capitalized. I think that's in reference to the Son, Jesus. So in order to understand this psalm, you have to understand that first part. The Lord God, perhaps God the Father, says to my Lord, the Son, or Christ, Sit at my right hand. Okay, so this is an address from God to the Son, or the Father to the Son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, and this is the text that Paul's alluding to. For he must reign until he makes all his enemies his, a footstool for his feet. It's not a perfect quote, but I think he's thinking about Psalm 110. Now, in this text, he's got 
uh, it's God the Father saying to the Son, I'm going to make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. But keep reading. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in your holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Notice verse 4. The Lord. Is that God the Father or the Son, according to that little capitalization thing I just told you? The Father. The Father has sworn, and he will not change his mind. Now he's addressing the Son. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord, verse 5, who's that in reference to? Jesus, the Son. The Lord is at your right hand. He, this is in reference to Jesus, this is what Jesus will do. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Jesus will execute judgment against the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. And so as as we think through this text, one of the interesting observations I just point out is that both God the Father and Jesus Christ are active in bringing about the submission of all the enemies of God. Verses 5 through 7, you've got, when this great day of wrath comes, Jesus, the Lord, will go about inflicting vengeance and judgment upon the planet. And so go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for a second, and I want to look with you at verse 25 again. Initially, God the Father makes all of Christ's enemies a footstool for his feet, but as you continue to read, you see that Christ himself is also active in securing or bringing about the submission of all of these enemies and destroying them. And so in verse 25, as we look in our Bibles again, 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he, that's Christ, must reign until, and I think it's again Christ, Christ has put all his enemies under his own feet. So I would take this. And so in these verses, he's describing the fact that Christ is going to reign until he puts all enemies in submission. And then, as he said, then he will hand the kingdom over to the Father. Now, uh, in conclusion here, I want to look at verses 26 through 28 and make one last point with you. We've seen the affirmation of Christ's resurrection, the impact when Jesus arises from the dead, launched a series of eschatological events that will occur. Believers will be resurrected. And then all these other things will happen, and then will come the end. But finally, we must recognize what I'd call the restoration that his resurrection brings. Verses 26 through 28. And so, look with me at verse 26. It says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection... It is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Verses 26 through 28 here, Paul closes by suggesting that death is the last enemy that Christ must defeat. I think that fits pretty well with that uh, Revelation text that I just mentioned to you. 
Of course, we know that the groundwork has already been laid for the, the, the thorough and utter defeat of death in the resurrection of Jesus. It's just a matter of time until uh, death is thoroughly and utterly defeated in the end times. But here, uh, of course, I, th- I think what he's saying here, in the end, it will be defeated. And no believer, again, will experience death. If you study through the Old and New Testament scriptures and you start working your way through them, you'll see that from Genesis chapter 2 on, the whole way to that text in Revelation 20, death is reigning and ruling down on people. Matter of fact, after the fall in the garden, whenever God goes to the garden to find, right, find Adam after his sin, and he confronts him regarding his sin. He, he talks about a whole host of things that will occur because of Adam's sin. He said, you will experience pain, thorns, thistles, sweat, heartache, and finally, you're going to die. This is all done. You return to the dust. And from about Genesis chapter 2, the whole way through your Bible, death is raining and rolling down on people. Of course, Christ defeats death in the Gospels, and we read about that in the epistles, but then it's not really until Revelation chapter 20 that Christ is, or that death is thoroughly and utterly defeated. And Paul's views on the defeat of death here are very important. Now, one of the things I'll mention about this passage, he says, uh, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then he uh, uh, appeals to another psalm, and and for sake of time, we won't go back there. It's Psalm 8 and verse 6. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Here I do believe he's describing the rule of God the Father. Now that psalm was originally about mankind and God submitting creation to mankind. Psalm 8, 6, but... Now, Paul will use it in reference to Christ. For God will put all things in subjection under his feet. As you continue to read, the passage kind of goes into a little bit of an aside, doesn't it? Uh, But it's an important aside. And the point of the, the next phrases would be to say there's only one being that God did not put into subjection under Jesus, or that he won't put in subjection under Jesus, and that is the one who put everything in subjection under Jesus, the Father himself. Okay, so as we're working through the text, uh, this appeal to Psalm 8-6, I think, is just helping us see the rule of God the Father in the subjection of all the enemies to Christ. Okay, but there's one last way we really need to end here, and that is what happens after the defeat of Satan, death, and all those authorities and powers. What does Jesus do? This is at that time when when things are finished and the last enemy is destroyed, death, then the Son himself will be subjected to the Father so that God might be all in all. See that? Ever wonder what in the world is that talking about? Well, I think what, he's, what Paul's describing there is in the end when Jesus has been successful to, to, uh, to bring under every authority, rule, or power that's in uh, opposition to God the Father, then Jesus will turn and he himself will submit under the Father, be submitted to the Father, so that God might be all in all. 
This last phrase, all in all, is a phrase that has thoroughly and utterly perplexed me over the years. I have gone to just about every commentary I can imagine, you could imagine, to try to see what does the phrase all in all mean? It's interesting, it's just three words in Greek, and it's just that, all in all. It's, I believe, some sort of figure of speech or metaphor, but the commentaries really struggle to try to figure out what it means. As a matter of fact, I was reading one commentator that said that he traced 41 different views of what the phrase all in all means. Well, I'm not going to go through all 41 of them for you uh, this evening. But I think that what Paul is saying is something like this. I think this phrase means that God's will would be supreme everywhere and in every way. Or in other words, what, what happens at the end, after Jesus has been successful in his role as the son to go about securing and, 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 and bringing under all these authorities, rules, and powers, uh, he, will, he will then submit to God the Father so that God will mean, this is two different ways I might translate it, so that God will mean all things in all beings. Or my favorite way of looking at this, so that God would be all things to all beings. All things to all beings. In other words, I think what you see a glimpse of at the end of this verse is the motivation that Jesus had in coming and submitting. Coming to this planet, living a perfect life, dying, and going about securing the the submission of all of these alien enemies of God. He does all of this, and what motivates him all along the way is that God the Father would become all things to all beings. I think what we have done here this evening then is we've kind of traced a little bit of salvation history and Paul's perspective of the resurrection. His view was that the resurrection of Jesus started a great, what I'd call uh, an eschatological scene a sequence of events. These events are now inevitable. And we will see uh, these things take place. Now, as I draw application for our church here and working through this passage, I'm just amazed with Paul's knowledge and his understanding of the end times, aren't you? And sometimes these things can be quite perplex or, you know, and, and complex, right? I, I kind of work through this and you're like, man, what? going on. We were in like Revelation there for a while. We're in Psalm 110. And he didn't even go to Psalm 8. I mean, we could have gone there too. And we kind of look through this chain of events. But what I want to encourage you as a church is, you know, we need to see life through eyes like the Apostle Paul as well. Christ will reign victorious over death, hell, and Satan. This is just a matter of time. It's going to happen. And we all need to remind each other of that. In the end, all of this is going to happen. And men and women, the Father will soon be all in all. All in all. So as the Apostle Paul ends this chapter in verse 58, I want to say things like this. If, If we can keep this sort of perspective on the end times, the fact that, you know, I think, Paul believed that the resurrection of Jesus started the end times. 
started a new age. The old age has passed away. And all this here is the coming age. Jesus' resurrection starts. If we, can, if we can believe that these are just a sequence of events that will occur, then I think we'll be much better off. And so I want to encourage you to, to keep these perspectives in mind. Hold faithful. Serve well. Soon we will be with them in glory. And God will be all in all. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for uh, the opportunity to work through this text. As I said, this would just be an overview. Lord, this is, a, this is a difficult text. But Father, we go to the text to learn more about you. We go to the text to learn more about Christ. We don't necessarily go to the text to, to get something for ourselves. But Father, as we come to this text, we've learned more about the Son. We've learned that Jesus was driven throughout life to bring about the submission and the destruction of all these enemy and these, these enemy forces to the Father. And then, Lord, we see his willingness to obey and to submit to the Father even at the end so that God might be all in all. Lord, I pray that as we live our lives, the, the impulse of Jesus, what motivated him, these desires, his plan, his obedience, his submission to the Father would also motivate us to live in such a way, to live faithfully, to serve well, so that we as well might be able to rejoice in the fact that one day soon you'll be all in all. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, do a great work in our church. May we see things like Paul. May we have this eschatological focus as well. It's just confident. These things are going to occur. They're going to occur as the Scripture described them. And may we rejoice together in the confident expectation and hope that the resurrection of Jesus Christ pledges, that it guarantees. We thank you, Lord, for this. In Jesus' name, amen.